Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Dr. Susan Moore made headlines in December, not for her work as a doctor, but the treatment she received as a patient battling COVID-19. Here she is. Yesterday, Dr. Bannock, B-A-N-N-E-C, wanted to send me home. At that time, I'd only received two treatments of the remdesivir. He said, ah, you don't need it. You're not even short of breath. I said, yes, I am. Then he went on to say, you don't qualify. I must have because um, I've gotten two treatments. Then he further stated, you should just go home right now. I don't feel comfortable giving you any more narcotics. I was in so much pain from my neck. My neck hurt so bad. I was crushed. He made me feel like I was a drug addict. And he knew I was a physician. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Dr. Moore was sent home from the hospital, and two weeks after she made that video, she died from COVID-19 complications. She was 52. Susan Moore is a stark, devastating example of health inequity, and it was highlighted in 2020 because of the disproportionate death rates for communities of color. Black Americans are 37% more likely to die from COVID than whites. So how do we address the reality of the disproportionate impact while working to build a more equitable health experience. Our first guest is Sarah Lewis, Vice President of Health Equity at Hartford HealthCare. Sarah, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one of the things that became apparent in 2020 was that it wasn't enough to just focus on individuals and and individual behavior, but we really had to start looking at institutions and structure. So what does health equity actually mean and how does it help us address those structures? Hmm. Um, Health equity does take the, the big picture and try to make it possible for every individual who operates within that larger picture, um, make it possible for every single person to live their healthiest life. Um, and, and that means that we, we need to identify the ways in which um, structures limit access to health and wellness based on identity, based on race, uh, gender identity, sexual orientation, place of origin, language, um, zip code, um, and and remove those barriers so that all the individuals who operate within those systems have a chance to live a a healthy life. And and you're right, COVID made it 
so plain. And um, those who may not have been aware prior to COVID emerging now keep telling me that they can't look away because the, 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 the mortality rates uh, among Black Americans when it comes to COVID are two or three times higher than that of, of white Americans. Um, and and it's, it's not because of, of, of the, the, the main reason is because we have structures in place that, that perpetuate inequity over time. Uh, someone who is in this field and you've been in this field for a very long time, but you're new to this particular position. You're the first vice yes. president of health equity, which means that it is an opportunity to build. But is there any frustration to say this isn't new? COVID revealed these disparities or tapped into these disparities. So how do you meld the two of these are things we should have been addressing. Now let's make the most of this opportunity. Yes. Thank you for, for lifting up that that very real tension in, in the space. Um, uh, you know, I have so many different ways to answer that question. You know, one of one of which is that um, the field of of medicine is very reasonably science, very science driven, and we we like to act um, based on evidence. and um, And one of the tools that we have in in fighting inequity is the the study of health disparities and quantifying them and and being able to uh, point to data to when when it comes to speaking with physicians when it comes to speaking with leaders in the healthcare space um, but there is something fundamentally frustrating about about that in that um, those of us with lived experience um, know that um, there's there's no one study that that fully encapsulates um, for instance, the fear that someone might have, um, given that a family member may have been exposed to um, syphilis during the Tuskegee experiment, right? Um, there, there's no, there's no accounting for that in the scientific literature. Um, the sort of vigilance that a person has to feel if they've experienced um, systemic racism in their lives. Um, so there's this frustration that we have to move at the pace of science, but. Um, uh, at the same time, we we are all humans working in systems and and, hu and humans who study science. So we have the the ability to interpret them humanistically, interpret the data humanistically, and also just respond to what the world is presenting to us humanistically. And and that's why this is a moment for profound change and transformation. Um, when when there is a, a, a death toll as massive as the one we've seen with this disease, um, it it spurs. Uh, it spurs action and it spurs reflection. And it also has to spur um, the commitment to keep doing the work because we're talking about centuries, as you know, of, of, um, of marginalization and, um, and, and disproportionate burden of, of, uh, of adverse outcomes on certain populations over others. Um, so it's not a quick fix. And that's the other thing is that a lot of folks in my profession want to have not just the evidence-based to define what's happening, but the evidence-based um, solution at their fingertips. And sometimes we don't have that. We don't have a quick fix for racism in healthcare. We don't have a quick fix for um, for, for these longstanding injustices. Um, and, and while it may seem uncomfortable, active listening is actually um, an action that can lead to change. Um, but it's it, it may feel uncomfortable because there, there's no immediate resolution, 
but it's one of the things that we have not been doing um, as, as regularly as we should have up to this point. So let's talk about some of those opportunities then to disrupt the status quo and, and disrupt the ways that uh, people have interacted with healthcare providers. When we think about this vaccine and all of the publicity, the very public action around that, you know, Dr. Sarah Lindsay, uh, uh, excuse me, Sandra Lindsay, a black doctor, was one of the first people in the U.S. to get vaccinated. And she said that she wanted to do it so that people who look like her come from the communities that she does could see her getting the vaccination and develop some sense of trust. And Hartford Healthcare has been very public about vaccinating its employees and its staff. Why is that so important? It's it's critically important because trust is earned, and um, and it must be earned over time with words, words and deeds and values. Um, and it's it's why we had to act immediately and and think about access to COVID testing um, for everyone and and bring COVID testing into different parts of the community uh, where we're not expecting people to have access to a car um, to come to one of our drive-through centers. We need to set up a testing location um, in different communities with churches, um, working with different community organizations. Um, and, and this is a continuation of that. It's, it's trying to break down um, barriers that that may have uh, existed prior to this pandemic um, between the science and the medicine and the people were really trying to heal. And, um, and, and people's lived experiences of, um, of fearing that institutions are not caring about their fundamental well-being, which is something that a lot of, of Black Americans, again, the vigilance that we have to sort of walk through life with, we carry that with us. And, and that's legitimate. And it's um, and the, the effort to be public about how our colleagues are getting vaccinated um, is to make space for people to feel that, that fear, but also to see um, that, that the people who are taking the most risk every day in caring for the sickest patients. Um, and, and that means everyone from the person who's bringing them a meal to the person who's changing their sheets, the person who's greeting them at the front door. These are our frontline workers and, and, and our doctors and our nurses and our, our techs and everyone else um, that, that these folks believe in, in, in protecting themselves in or, with the vaccine in order to keep providing the care that we need to provide every day. With all of the attention to the longstanding disparities, the longstanding tensions that often exist between healthcare providers and hospitals and the patients and communities they serve. I have been haunted over this last month of this video of Dr. Susan Moore, Black woman internist, who chronicled her journey with COVID-19 and the disrespect that she received as both a doctor and a patient. And to hear her say, you know, they're treating me as if I'm a drug addict and I don't understand my pain and begging for that attention. 
how do we address that? The, the, the fear that many people of color have that they will not be taken seriously, that their issues will be dismissed. And here is a woman who is or was as trained as the people who were there to help her. And yet she still couldn't get that respect. Yeah. Uh, haunt, haunted is the word. Um, um, thank you for lifting up her name and her her tragic her tragic story um it is so heartbreaking that we read it and our hearts are are broken by it and it's still not that surprising you know we've 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 heard of it before um you know i've i've worked um in the the space of of maternal health and um and and disparities in in maternal health outcomes and the knowledge that I, as a, as a black woman with a master's degree, um, I'm more likely to die in childbirth than um, a white woman who just has a, college, a high school education. Um, that, that the things that we sometimes tell ourselves are protective, like additional education, um, uh, having a, you know, owning a home, all of the, the sort of signifiers of success are not. Um, protective when it comes to um, the the health and well-being of so many in this country and, and Black Americans especially, um, th this is the the sort of trauma that we have to recognize as as healthcare providers, um, and and we have to turn the mirror on ourselves to understand where our biases presenting themselves in ways that are literally causing people to lose their lives. Um, it's it's not easy work. Um, I, I know that, that no one goes into healthcare to harm people, um, but we are humans, we are fallible, and, and there's plenty of research that shows when people's limitations are, are, are really stretched, when our attentions are stretched, when we're tired, when we're worn out, our ability to, um, to overcome bias thinking just really eliminate, it, it goes away, and um, we need to find tools to help get it back. And, and to ed and be honest that it exists in the first place. We all have bias um, and it, we have to treat it like another, like any other quality and safety program that we run in a hospital, hand hygiene. We got to wash our hands and we talk about it every single day. There are posters all over the place. We need to figure out how to talk about bias that way because if it could harm someone, we have to figure out how to, how to reduce it. And um, the, the, the outcomes and the, the urgency could not be greater. That was Sarah Lewis, Vice President of Health Equity at Hartford HealthCare. After the break, we hear more from Sarah about how to rebuild trust, empathy, and understanding. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Coming up, Kika Matos from the Vera Institute talks about why some in Connecticut's undocumented community are hesitant to take the vaccine. But now we're back with Sarah Lewis, Vice President of Health Equity at Hartford HealthCare. In the wake of last year's protest, there were many conversations about how to move forward, reform systems, and gain trust of communities of color. I asked Sarah how this historical backdrop plays out today. That tension is um, is is so real, and and people may 
we, we do have to start with validating the, the place that our patients are coming from. And they may be coming from a place of lived experience um, and, and that power dynamic between a physician or a provider and, um, and a patient. We're all aware of that, just sort of expecting that the, the, this person who's, who's gone through so much training and education um, has this sort of sense of authority and that we are, even though they're taking care of us, they, they, they're the ones who have all the answers and that, that that's just sort of a human thing, that power dynamic or that, that um, and that difference between um, who has the power in the conversation. Um, and then, and there, so there could be a lived experience of, of bias in healthcare, or there could just be a lived experience of bias in getting a bank loan or bias in um, looking for a job and being interviewed for something or, or bias in um, having been, um, uh, having an, an unjust interaction with, with law enforcement. And that can affect the way that a patient arrives in, in our facilities. Um, and, and so, and someone may also have an experience or have uh, a point of view coming into one of our facilities thinking, you know, I've read about Tuskegee, I've, I've read about forced sterilization in, in the United States among, um, uh, among people of color. I've, I've, I've read about Henrietta Lacks and, and that's enough for me to, to feel a little bit more vigilant. Um, any of these things can, can affect the way someone comes to us and, and we have to allow and validate that uh, those fears, while also um, being very clear that we're here to help, that this, that especially when it comes to the vaccine, we want our communities to be safe. And, and we're trying to get to that, the other side of this healthcare crisis. Um, and so ask us questions, ask us, you know, name your fear. If you're, if you feel comfortable telling us, what are you afraid of? So that we can work it out together, human to human. Um, we have the, the ability as humans to connect with one another, but we have to start with where people are and just, just taking a position of, of lecturing or, or saying, you don't get it. That's not going to help folks get there. Um, you know, helping people understand that these mRNA vaccines, yes, they, the, the vaccine for, for COVID was developed very quickly, but the, the science behind it is, is 10 to 20 years old. You know, people studying RSV and then studying MERS and, um, and, and then the platform being developed through um, government funded research and private research. That's, that's the scientific process. And so there, and, and, and there, I think that history needs to be told and giving people the sense that, um, that this isn't just something that somebody whipped up in a laboratory over, you know, just a couple of months. It, it's the process has been in development and we're just so grateful that that original research was done so that we can now save people's lives and taking the time to have those conversations with people, I think is so critical. Who are your partners in this work? You talked about testing and how, you know, I know that Hartford HealthCare had a mobile unit to go out into communities. And you mentioned working with churches. Who are your partners now to talk about those fears, to help people develop the language, to name those fears? You know, I often hear people say Tuskegee. And then I I read a, a very poignant point from a woman whose father was a part of that study. 
who said, if you really want to honor my father, understand the study and talk in an accurate way about what happened to him and don't allow this to be this scapegoat without understanding the sort of generational pain that they've experienced. So with whom do you work to do that, to have those conversations? That's really great. Um, and, And that just reminds me, this is living memory, right? We're, we're dealing with um, injustices that are not abstract by any means. And, um, and I think we really need to keep lifting up that reality. Um, so yes, we, we want to work with every single partner that we um, collaborated with when it comes to testing. And uh, so every, every single church, every single congregate living organization, um, every single public health department, um, and uh, every um, organization providing services to people experiencing homelessness. And if we need to do a listening session, if we need to um, answer any specific questions that people have ahead of time, uh, we wanna be able to do that. Um, we have worked uh, in the Hartford region specifically, um, there's a collaborative called the North Hartford Triple AAA Collaborative. Um, and we bring together all of the providers in, in the Hartford, Greater Hartford region, um, plus United Way and many of our, our, um, our foundations. And, uh, and there's been some research that's been going on around um, first vac- flu vaccine adoption. What, what, does, what do our communities wanna, wanna hear when it comes to feeling safe about getting the flu vaccine? Um, how does that translate into um, how people will feel safe around uh, getting the COVID vaccine? So, and these, the, the research is done by, by asking questions and then listening. And, and being comfortable with the silence and maybe saying, well, what if, what if we presented it to you this way and listening to their answers and, and then leading from their answers and essentially following the lead of our community partners. Um, and we have to just have to keep doing that over and over and over again. Because the thing is, we're gonna have other vaccine candidates that get approved. There will be more questions about those. You know, We're talking about at least a year long process of getting people vaccinated, maybe two years. Um, and so that we also need to be in it for the long haul and not just think about this as, well, we, we did something for the first six months of the, years and, and of the year and we're done. No, it's, it's, gonna keep, it's gonna keep going on and on. You know, I appreciate the idea that we need to have these ongoing conversations and not assume that it's done, that these things have come, we're going to address this one time and then move on. And I think it's particularly important given the you know, dominance of social media. When I hear people going to their Facebook friends or looking at a tweet to determine that, but even the idea that people feel they can trust people they see on social media more than they can the science also introduces a new element for us to address, right? So let's then, as we think about moving forward, We didn't get here overnight. You know, I don't want people to lose sight of the fact that COVID-19 is still a very serious issue in our lives. It's still claiming, you know, every day I look at the numbers and I think, how did we get here? Why are we still here? And we, we know that some of it is behavioral, but what's giving you hope in this moment as you think about the possibilities? Mm. Thank you for asking that. Um, I, a lot of things are giving me hope, even, even in these dark times, as you say, 
I am I am so hopeful about these vaccines. I, I can't tell you as something of a biology nerd. Um, I, I, I cheer, I, I do a little dance. Um, it's, it's fascinating. It's the, it's a triumph of, of human ability. I honestly believe, um, and it's, it's collaborative. It takes a lot of people to do, to do something like this. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that, that we will be able to vaccinate enough people, um, such that we will save lives. Lives will actually be saved as a result of access to um, to these vaccines, and 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 families will be saved, and and kids will be able to resume education in a way that is um, that is so much better for them than than doing things remotely. Um, that we'll be able to spend time with our loved ones and. Um, and while this is not right around the corner and I, and I don't want to paint a rosy picture, we still have a lot of vigilance that we need to maintain when it comes to COVID-19. But I think that um, that towards the end of this year, we're going to be able to, you know, the, my goal for this year is by the end of the year to hug someone I wasn't able to hug last year. That's it. And I think I can do that this year. And, um, and I'm excited for other people to be able to hug someone they weren't able to hug last year. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for this platform. I'm grateful for your show. Um, and I'm hopeful about the fact that, um, that through all of the, the trauma and the, the sadness of the loss of 2020, um, we are talking about some hard truths in a way that I think can lead to healing as long as we're willing to keep telling the truth about what we're seeing. You know, John Hope Franklin, who was the noted historian, said we have an obligation to tell the unvarnished truth. And as we think about what we've learned or what we're learning, I hope that we'll continue telling that unvarnished truth and not just waiting until a person becomes a patient, but telling that truth in medical schools so that future healthcare providers understand the world that they're stepping into and that we can develop that mutual respect. Sarah Lewis is Vice President of Health Equity at Hartford Healthcare. Thank you so much for joining us on Disrupted. My great pleasure. And a note here, Hartford Healthcare is an underwriter for Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up next, Kika Matos from the Vera Institute talks about the risk for undocumented populations accessing vaccines. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about health inequities and why certain communities are so hesitant to receive the COVID vaccine. Kika Matos is vice president of the Vera Institute, and she's been working with and advocating for New Haven's immigrant community for over a decade. I asked her about the impact of the pandemic and what challenges she's seeing right now. Uh, There are several of them. Um, First and foremost is the absolute climate of fear uh, that this administration has created uh, in the immigrant community, particularly the undocumented community, as a result of its practices and policies. Over the last four years, the Trump administration implemented over 400, that's 400, anti-immigrant uh, executive orders and actions and ramped up its enforcement. And so what that means for immigrant communities is that uh, there is just 
so much fear, so much terror, and calculated risks that you ask yourself every day whether you should take. So if you're not needing to go to your job, if you're not needing to attend to some urgent issue, you don't go out. You stay in your home. And as advocates, we have done a lot of know your rights information so that people know what to do if they come across enforcement. Right. But that in and of itself has really solidified in people's minds this idea that this government is pursuing us. It doesn't want us here. It, you know, you can't feel safe anywhere. Right. And even if you're in your own home, what we've said to immigrants is if somebody knocks on your door and you don't know who they are, you don't answer. And so there is that piece of it, just tremendous fear. Um, you know, the other piece of it is uh, distrust in government. Not dissimilar from what we have heard in African-American communities. You know, when it comes to healthcare and immigrants, particularly immigrants of color, there is too much of a history of healthcare being used against immigrants or people getting subpar healthcare. And so I'll give you a recent example from a few months ago, and I know you're aware of this, but it was the incidents in Georgia, uh, in a Georgia detention center of the forced sterilization of at least seven immigrant women of color, right? And so when it comes to feeling a level of trust about this vaccine, when it comes to feeling this level of trust, whether I can actually um, trust that what is being administered to my body is good for me and it's gonna protect me. So there is that barrier that comes from um, feeling a level of distrust. There are many incidents of immigrants, uh, and some of this is anecdotal, some of this has been reported, of immigrants going to healthcare centers and being treated in the worst possible way, right? Having their pain ignored, um, not being given the adequate um, kind of uh, healthcare that we expect when we go to see our healthcare practitioners. So there's distrust. And then the third thing that I would say, and, and we see this in many immigrant communities around the country, there is also a sense of isolation and lack of access. So I want to unpack that because you have touched on all of the aspects that we say are necessary in order to have a healthy, safe, vibrant community. And if all of those foundations are shattered and disrupted, how do we get there? So let's talk about the first issue, which is trust, where we know that having a trusting relationship with your healthcare provider is essential, not just for you, but for your family and the families to which you are connected. And if immigrant communities have this fear that if they're even able to access healthcare, that they may have an experience that is negative or that that may be used against them, how do we address that while also addressing the reality that this pandemic is decimating communities of color in very real ways that go beyond merely going to the doctor? Look, I think it starts from the the level of government, right? The highest levels of government, right? We want the governor and um, his lieutenants to really think about ways to make sure that healthcare is readily accessible uh, to immigrants, that immigrants know that um, government wants to make sure that healthcare is accessible to them. 
Um, we need to change our laws around healthcare, right? This has been an ongoing fight. You shouldn't have to pay an inordinate amount of money to get access to healthcare. Healthcare is something that all of us benefit from. And if this pandemic isn't an example of why all of us need to have excellent healthcare, I don't know what is. The other thing is there are policies um, in place that constantly rub up against immigrants' access to healthcare because of the enforcement mechanisms. And so I'll give you a perfect example. There is a, a policy in place. It's not a law, it's a policy that says that ICE and Customs and Border Patrol are prohibited from engaging in enforcement practices in hospitals and clinics and healthcare settings, right? We need to make that into law. And we also need to hold ICE and CPB officers accountable because despite these policies, they still violate these policies all the time. There are examples of ICE and CPB officers roaming around the hospitals. Guess what that does? That terrifies um, immigrants. And then the last thing I would say related to the vaccine, which I found really shocking, is that the federal government put in place something called a data sharing agreement um, in, in, uh, as part of the vaccination uh, requirement. And that data sharing agreement is an agreement with states and it requires that every person being vaccinated has to provide some sort of ID, and this includes social security numbers, passport numbers, or information obtained from a driver's license. Um, and the part of the provision of the data sharing agreement is also that the federal government is interpreting this data as something that they can share with other federal agencies, including ICE. And so, you know, New York um, was one of the states that pushed back and reached an agreement with the uh, CDC to say, this is a huge barrier for immigrants, right? How are we gonna encourage immigrants, undocumented immigrants in particular to step forward? And then we're requiring all of this information that can ostensibly be turned over to immigration and customs enforcement. Um, I've been in communication with the Department of Public Health and the governor's office in Connecticut, and I'm happy to say that in Connecticut, in order to get a vaccine, their policies are such that there is no ID requirement and that the folks at the governor's office told me that Connecticut does not collect social security number, passport number or anything of that sort. And they said that they're not gonna share personally identifiable information with the feds. So that is comforting in the state of Connecticut, but those are the kinds of provisions that we need to put in place in order to protect immigrant communities. Immigrant communities are part of our communities. And so we should do everything we can to make sure that, they, that we make them welcome in, in this state and that they have access uh, to healthcare services and education and everything else that the rest of us do. So Kika, you are involved in this every day, but the average person, including me, was not aware of this data sharing provision and the need to really make a strong statement statewide. How do we get this information out? Because this should be a concern. Yes, it has an impact on immigrant communities. Yes, we should have them feel welcomed in this state, which is not our state, but collectively is our state. How do we get this info out so that people know this should not be a barrier to you being able to protect yourself and your family? You know, we need to work, and, and, and I said earlier that I've started working and engaging in conversations with uh, the state, state government. So I would say a couple of things. One is public education and outreach. 
right? First, we have, you know, we have we have secured from Connecticut assurances that um, people will not be subject to enforcement or deportation if they come forward to get vaccinated, right? So now we have to make sure that we spread the word. So we have to engage in public education. We have to engage in outreach. We have to be culturally competent as well. Right? We have to use, you know, what is known as ethnic media, right? We have to use um, media in multiple languages to encourage people to get vaccinated. We also need to launch a massive campaign that is really comprehensive to make sure that in every single corner of the state, in every community, there is information about how you access the vaccine. And for particularly vulnerable populations, we need to make sure that they understand that, that this is readily available to them, that it is safe. We need to tap community leaders. We need to tap faith leaders. We also need to think about how we make the vaccine readily available to people who work, right? Think about immigrants who are working in nurseries. We should make the vaccine available after hours. We should make sure that there are healthcare providers going into communities, right? There's always this expectation, you want access to healthcare, you want access to vaccines, it's up to you to go find it. Well, in this public health crisis, it should be the opposite. Right, healthcare providers should be making it their business to map it out. Where do we need to be? How do we make sure that every single person in this state has access to the vaccine? So those are just some um, thoughts. And I would say the final one is, I want our governor to let ICE know that they're not welcome in our communities and that we don't want them anywhere near uh, healthcare centers. We don't want them anywhere near hospitals. As our communities get vaccinated, we don't even want to see a, a, an ice van anywhere in our state. Because if that happens, we are not going to succeed in our efforts to eradicate this vaccine and to um, create a different model of what healthcare should be for our, our residents. So much of what we've been debating coming out of, you know, these experiences and what we can learn to disrupt business as usual when it comes to the provision of healthcare is also the understanding that our region, our state operates within this broader national structure. And so you had the CEO of Pfizer saying the vaccine will be made free to all American citizens. You had the governor of Nebraska making this distinction that undocumented workers working within these high risk professions or industries and plants would not have access or would not be considered a part of the essential class that needed to do that. That seems to fly in the face of so much of what you say needs to be done. This idea that if we sequester people based on citizenship, even though we know they're working in these essential functions, doesn't that undermine the notion of having a healthier and safer population? Look, this is an example of cutting your nose to spite your face, right? And it's, it's an example of the, of the ways that we let bigotry get in the way of what is good for our nation. The idea that the governor of Nebraska can, can proclaim publicly that undocumented immigrants are not welcome to get the vaccine is preposterous. And it's disgusting because 
He very well knows how the state of Nebraska benefits economically from the labor of the undocumented population in his state. You know, the statement from the Pfizer CEO is also preposterous and extremely elitist, right? Again, this is a somebody who should know better, somebody who knows about the healthcare field, right? If we want to eradicate COVID-19, we have to make sure it's accessible to everybody because the virus isn't going to jump from person to person saying, okay, well, you're undocumented, you're not undocumented, this is how we're going to operate in your body. So the idea that, that these... Um, these leaders, right, would profess their bigotry and their ignorance in such open ways in a way that is antithetical to our goals around health is repulsive to me. And it, you know, it calls on all of us to reject that kind of bigotry and that kind of ignorance, because if we don't step up and start doing that, we're going to see more examples of what we saw in the Capitol happen around the country. And that is not acceptable, not in any democracy. There's been a lot of debate about the rollout of this vaccine, of the triaging, if you will, of deciding which community should get it first. And it mirrors what we saw in spring of 2020 when there was all this debate about who is essential. And what we learned is that many of the people who were deemed in essential occupations were not protected as such. They certainly were not compensated in that way. And they were often people of color, often immigrant women working in these high risk jobs that they didn't have the protections. So as we think about a path forward, Kika, how do we address that so that this doesn't just become something that we've done for this pandemic, but that we're actually interrogating what you mentioned as, you know, the sort of elitism about which professions we want to protect and which people we want to protect based on their status? Yeah, look, I, I think, um, you know, one of the, the reflections of the last four years and certainly one of the reflections um, around the vaccine and around the, you know, the, atro the atrocious behavior that we saw um, in DC just a few days ago um, and the murder of George Floyd and all of the terrible things that have happened um, in 2020 is that this really should be a wake up call and a moment of reckoning for this country, right? We have a deep, long history of race discrimination, right? And it, it, it if it's one thing that this pandemic has done around um, identifying racial disparities is to really elevate the way that people of color have con consistently and continually been discriminated against uh, in the healthcare field, right? We have seen the ways that white supremacy has eroded our democracy. And so this is a moment for us to take a step back to say, what are the fundamental things that we need to do to restore democracy in our country? And I would say that in the area of healthcare, we need to also deeply examine the way that disparities still continue to show up in terms of access to healthcare under COVID and access to this vaccine. Right? It doesn't escape me that part of the debate that is really deeply rooted in racism around who is most deserving of COVID treatment and who is most des deserving of this vaccine is also coded in racial language. Right? The idea, for example, that you know, part of what is being debated is you know, if, if your odds of surviving COVID are such, um, you know, the slims are, if the odds are so terrible for you that you shouldn't, 
you know, in the triage system, we're going to dismiss you. That is racism, right? Because of the way that the healthcare system has consistently discriminated against people of color, and we see it in COVID. So this is a moment of reckoning for us to take a step back and say, what are the, the systemic things that we need to address to do away with racial discrimination uh, in, the, in the healthcare system? Similarly to our democracy at the national level, what are the things that we need to do to restore our democracy so that everybody feels a sense of belonging in this country and that everybody is actively participating in our democracy, because if now is no, is not the moment, I don't know when. I don't know when will be the right moment. So let's talk about this moment. We've seen people announced as cabinet appointees who tend to have a different approach to some of these issues. Are you hopeful that that kind of change at the federal level may support some of the changes that need to happen? Or do you think that it will take more than a new administration to disrupt how we think about people based on their status? And not just how we think about people, but how we treat people based on status. I am both hopeful, but I am also um, aware of the fact that we have to be agitational, right? So I expect that this administration will set a different floor Right, but we have to we have to push for a better ceiling, right? And by that I mean by the very nature of the fact that we have um, a, a new administration coming in that is not authoritarian, right? That does not uphold um, in the most extreme ways uh, the values of white supremacists, right? That is determined to restore our democracy. Those are all good things for us, but I don't think that we should expect that unless all of us make demands on our government of what our expectations are. I don't think we should expect that they will transform our country in the ways that we think are necessary, right? And so, you know, you know, one of the other reflections I had is, you know, for those of us who care deeply about racial justice and who care deeply about our democracy, right, they should also realize that it's no longer okay just to rely on people like me and my colleagues to continue to advocate for for racial and social justice and for the strengthening of our democracy. All of us need to participate and we need to stretch our levels of comfort. Voting is is a floor, not a ceiling. Voting is not enough, right? You have to figure out the things that you care most about in our democracy and you need to fight and step up uh, to make sure that we see transformative change over the next four years. What is one takeaway that you would say to people who are listening and say, well, what do I do? What can I do? What should I do? You are involved in many levels of this. What would you say to the average person who wants to make that demand to harness that power and not cede that need to you and your colleagues? Um, first, I think the, you know, what, what I have always asked myself is what are the issues that I care most about and who is doing them? And one of the, you know, we may critique Google for all sorts of things, but the beauty of Google is that if you're interested in civic engagement, if you're interested in healthcare, if you're interested in racial justice issues, if you're interested in immigration issues, then you ask yourself, do I want to show up locally or do I want to show up nationally? And you simply could just Google, right? Civic engagement, Connecticut, civic engagement, New Haven or Hartford or, or wherever you live. And inevitably, right, you will see 
organizations that are involved in the struggle. You could also go on Facebook and find similar things. And that's how you connect to causes and institutions and people, right? The other way to do it is to simply be on the lookout. There are all sorts of bulletin boards that are available now um, on the internet, right? Virtual bulletin boards that advertise the kinds of community activities that are taking place. Most of them now are on Zoom. Show up, right? Show up and, and it doesn't matter what you end up doing. Right, be it phone banking, right? One of the beauties that of the victory in Georgia uh, in the Senate is that this was a national victory because some people said, I'm just gonna dedicate two hours on Saturday to phone banking, right? I'm going to call people on this list to encourage them to vote for my senatorial candidate, right? And that to me is civic engagement. That is a participatory democracy, right? And so I think it, it is not that hard to figure out, right? Use Google, use Facebook, go on Twitter, go on Instagram, you know, talk to your local elected official, right? If you want to get involved in local government, right? Local elected officials are always are also a treasure trove in, in terms of directing you to who's doing what. Because any local elected official worth their weight in salt will know exactly who are the people on the ground that are doing really good work. So it's just that simple. Show up. Yes. Right? And show up. I think sometimes we make it harder than it needs to be. It doesn't have to be grand action, but it is starting where we are for the things that we care about. Kika Matos is vice president of the Vera Institute. Kika, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tolarski. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.